Chapter 19 of Where No Fear Was, a book about fear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T.P. Zom. Where No Fear Was, a book about fear, by Arthur Christopher Benson. Chapter 19 Sin It is everyone's duty to take himself seriously. That is, the right mean between taking oneself either solemnly or apologetically. There is no merit in being apologetic about oneself. One has a right to be there, wherever one is. A right to an opinion. A right to take some kind of hand in whatever is going on. Natural tact is the only thing which can tell us exactly how far those rights extend. But it is inconvenient to be apologetic because if one insists on explaining how one comes to be there, or how one comes to have an opinion, other people begin to think that one needs explanation and excuse. But it is even worse to be solemn about oneself, because English people are very critical in private, though they're tolerant in public, because they dislike a scene, and have not got the art of administering the delicate snub which indicates to a man that his self-confidence is exuberant without humiliating him. When English people inflict a snub, they do it violently and emphatically, like Dr. Johnson, and it generally means that they are relieving themselves of accumulated disapproval. An Englishman is apt to be deferential, and one of the worst temptations of official life is the temptation to be solemn. There is an old story about Scott and Wordsworth, when the latter stayed at Abbotsford, Scott, during the whole visit, was full of little pleasant and courteous allusions to Wordsworth's poems. And one of the guests present records how at the end of the visit not a single word had ever passed Wordsworth's lips, which could have indicated that he knew his host to have ever written a line of poetry or prose. I was sitting the other day at a function, next to a man of some eminence, and I was really amazed at the way in which he discoursed of himself and his habits, his diet, his hours of work, and the blank indifference with which he received similar confidences. He merely waited till the speaker had finished, and then resumed his own story. It is this sort of solemn egotism which makes us overvalue our anxieties, quite out of all proportion to their importance, because they all appear to us as integral elements of a dignified drama in which we enact the hero's part, we press too heavily on the sense of responsibility. And if we begin by telling boys, as is too often done in sermons, that whatever they do or say is of far-reaching consequence, that every lightest word may produce an effect, that any carelessness of speech or example may have a disastrous effect upon the character of another, we are doing our best to encourage the self-emphasis which is the very essence of priggishness. There is a curious conflict going on at the present time in English life between light-mindedness and solemnity. There is a great appetite for living, a love of amusement, a tendency to subordinate the interests of the future to the pleasures of the moment, and to think that the one serious evil is boredom. That is a healthy manifestation enough in its way, because it stands for interest and delight in life. But there is another strain in our nature, 
that of a rather heavy pietism, inherited from our Puritan ancestors. It must not be forgotten that the Puritan got a good deal of interest out of his sense of sin. As the old combative elements of feudal ages disappeared, the soldierly blood retained the fighting instinct and turned it into moral regions. The sense of adventure is implied to satiate itself, and the pilgrim's progress is a clear enough proof that the old combativeness was all there, reveling in danger and exulting in the thought that the human being was in the midst of foes. Sin represented itself to the Puritan as a thing out of which he could get a good deal of fun. Not the fun of yielding to it, but the fun of whipping out his sword and getting in some shrewd blows. When preachers nowadays lament that we have lost the sense of sin, what they really mean is that we have lost our combativeness. We no longer believe that we must treat our foes with open and brutal violence, and we perceive that such conduct is only pitting one sin against another. There is no warrant in the gospel for the combative idea of Christian life. All such metaphors and suggestions come from St. Paul and the Apocalypse. The fact is that the world was not ready for the utter peaceableness of the gospel, and it had to be accommodated to the violence of the world. Now again, the Christian idea is colored by scientific and medical knowledge, and sin, instead of an enemy which we must fight, has become a disease which we must try to cure. Sins, the ordinary sins of ordinary life, are not as a rule instincts which are evil in themselves, so much as instincts which are selfishly pursued to the detriment of others. Sin is, in its essence, the selfishness which will not cooperate, and which secures advantages unjustly, without any heed to the disadvantage of others. Sympathetic imagination is the real foe of sin, the power of putting oneself in the place of another, and much of the sentiment which is so prevalent nowadays is the evidence of the growth of sympathy. The old theory of sin lands one in a horrible dilemma, because it implies a treacherous enmity on the part of God, to create man weak and unstable, and to pit his weakness against tyrannous desires. To allow his will to do evil to be stronger than his power to do right is a satanical device. One must not sacrifice the truth to the desire for simplicity and effective statement. The truth is intricate and obscure, and to pretend that it is plain and obvious is mere hypocrisy. The strength of Calvinism is its horrible resemblance to a natural inference from the facts of life. But if any sort of Calvinism is true, then it is mere insult to the intelligence to say that God is loving or just. The real basis for all deep-seated fear about life is the fear that one will not be dealt with either lovingly or justly. But we have to make a simple choice as to what we will believe, and the only hope is to believe that immediate harshness and injustice is not ultimately inconsistent with love. No one who knows anything of the world and of life can pretend to think or say that suffering always results from, or is at all proportioned to, moral faults. And if we are tempted to regard all our disasters as penal consequences, then we are tempted to endure them with gloomy and morbid immobility. It is far more wholesome and encouraging 
to look upon many disasters that befall us as opportunities to show a little spirit, to evoke the courage which does not come by indolent prosperity, to increase our sympathy, to enlarge our experience, to make things clearer to us, to develop our minds and heart, to free us from material temptations. Past suffering is not always an evil. It is often an exciting reminiscence. It is good to take life adventurously, like Odysseus of old. What would one feel about Odysseus if instead of contriving a way out of the Cyclops' cave, he had set himself to consider of what forgotten sin his danger was a consequence? Suffering and disaster come to us to develop our inventiveness and our courage, not to daunt and dismay us. And we ought therefore to approach experience with a sense of humor, if possible, and with a lively curiosity. I recollect hearing a man the other day describing an operation to which he had been subjected. My word, he said, his eyes sparkling with the delight at the recollection, that was awful. When I came into the operating room and saw the surgeons in their togs and the pails and basins all about, and was invited to step up to the table. There is nothing so agreeable as the remembrance of fears through which we have passed, and we can only learn to despise them by finding out how unbalanced they are. I do not mean that fears can ever be pleasant at the time, but we do them too much honor if we court them and defer to them. However much we may be tortured by them, there is always something at the back of our mind which despises our own susceptibility to them, and it is that deeper instinct which we ought to trust. But we cannot even begin to trust it as long as we allow ourselves to believe pietistically that the mind of God is set on punishment. That is the ghastly error which humanity tends to make. It has been dinned into us, alas, from our early years, and religious phraseology is constantly polluted by it. Our Savior lent no countenance to this at all. He spoke perfectly plainly against the theory of judgments. Of course suffering is sometimes a consequence of sin, but it is not a vindictive punishment. It is that we may learn our mistakes. But we must give up the revengeful idea of God, that is imported into our scale of values by the grossest anthropomorphism. Only the weak man who fears that his safety will be menaced if he does not make an example deals in revenge. He is indignant at anything which mortifies his vanity, which implies any doubt of his power or any disregard of his wishes. Revenge is born of terror, and to think of God as vindictive is to think of him as subject to fear. Serene and unquestioned strength can have nothing to do with fear. Milton is largely responsible for perpetuating this belief. He makes the Almighty say to the Son, Let us advise, and to this hazard draw with speed what force is left, and all employ in our defense, lest unawares we lose this high place, our sanctuary, our hill. Milton's idea of the Almighty was frankly that of a power who had undertaken more than he could manage, and who had allowed things to go too far. But it is a puerile conception of God, 
and to allow ourselves to think or speak of God as a power that has to take precautions or that has anything to fear from the exercise of human volition is to cloud the whole horizon at once. But we ought rather to think of God as a power which for some reason works through imperfection. The battle of the world is that of force against inertness, and our fears are the shadow of that combat. Fear should then rather show us that we are being confronted with experience, and that our duty is to disregard it, to march forward through it, to come out of the other side of it. It is an adventure, in fact. The disaster in which we are involved is not sent to show us that the eternal power which created us is vexed at our failures or bent on crushing us. It is exactly the opposite. It is to show us that we are worth testing, worth developing, and that we are to have the glory of going on. The very fear of death is the last test of our belief in love. We are assuredly meant to believe that the coward is to learn the beauty of courage, and the laggard is to perceive the worth of energy, that the selfish man is to be taught sympathy. If we must make a metaphor, let us rather think of God as the graver of the gem than as the child that beats her doll for collapsing instead of sitting upright. It is our dishonoring thought of God as jealous, suspicious, fond of exhibiting power, revengeful, cruel, that does us harm. We must rather think of his heart as full of courage, energy, and hope, as teeming with joy, lightness, zest, and mirth. And then we can begin to think of failures, fears, delays, as things small and unimportant, not as malicious ambushes, but as rough bits of the road, as obstacles to reveal and to develop our strength and gaiety. There is no joy in the world so great as the joy of finding ourselves stronger than we know. And that is what God is bent upon showing us, and not upon proving to us that we are vile and base in the spirit of the old Calvinist, who said to his own daughter when she was dying of a painful disease, that she must remember that all short of hell was mercy. It is so, but hell is rather what we start from, and out of which we have to find our way, than the waste paper basket of life, the last receptacle for our shattered purposes. End of chapter 19 Recording by T. P. Zom.